do the youth have to be dismissed or do they leave? Youth and child ministry and, and anybody who don't want to be here, get out now before the ushers lock it up. Looks like they all went. Praise God. We're uh, going to jump into the word tonight. Hope you're doing well. Hope you're blessed. Uh, I'm going to thank God for Hebrews chapter 8 tonight, and then Sister Kim is going to come and read it. More about Jesus being our high priest. Remember, one of the key issues here in Hebrews is proving the superiority of Christ to the Jewish listener so that they would be comfortable in abandoning all of their traditions and the old covenant and all of those things. Big step for them to leave that all behind and come into something new. It's all they'd ever known. So the writer of Hebrews, who most scholars feel is Paul, but we're not sure, is building a really good case here for the superiority of Christ. And chapter 7 and chapter 8 spent a lot of time uh, you know, talking about the high priesthood of Jesus and the order of Melchizedek, and hopefully you're learning some powerful things. So let's thank God for chapter 8. Father, we thank you tonight that we can come together in your house and study the word together. Holy Spirit, quicken the truth to us, reveal it from the text, and tuck it deep in our hearts tonight, Lord, that we would be able to draw from it as a well when we need truth. And Father, we thank you for the treasures of Hebrews tonight. And Father, even though we're Gentiles, we recognize what an amazing thing you've done by grafting us in uh, to this covenant here that has been eclipsed by a new and better covenant. So Father, uh, let us rejoice in what you have done and at the same time have reverence uh, for the Jewish people, and they are still part of your divine plan, and uh, they are still part of what you're going to do in the last days. And so, Father, show us as your people, as your church, what our posture should be, what our attitude should be, and what an incredible high priest we have in Jesus Christ. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 8. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary, and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to, author, to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen, and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, 
for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Powerful stuff in there, amen? You awake out there? All right. So here we are, jumping into Hebrews 8. Before I do that, um, Michelle pointed out to me last week that I said that Abraham was at the transfiguration, and that was fake news. <laughs> Moses and Elijah were at the transfiguration, but Abraham, Abraham was up there going. So here's, what I, here's the point I was trying to make while it wasn't making sense. Um, Moses and Elijah visit Jesus on in New Testament time as Christ is on the earth here. So what I was using that as an example of the fact that, you know, here's Old Testament saints that are obviously uh, alive and doing well, and they visit Jesus in a New Testament period before the crucifixion. Using that as a point to strengthen the fact that Jesus could have, in fact, been a Christophany appearing as Melchizedek to Abraham. Uh, so, you know, Melchizedek, we don't know exactly who he is, but he has divine attributes. So, uh, Abraham ties to him, honors him. Uh, he has no beginning, no end. A lot of powerful stuff going in there. So we see Moses and Elijah, they appear in the New Testament period there as Christ walked the earth. We also see Abraham uh, having some sort of rendezvous with this Melchizedek. Not exactly sure who he is, but we're pretty sure that he is either the Holy Spirit or Jesus Christ. Now, as far as Abraham's concerned, I'll reread the scripture that I did last week before I jump into chapter 8, just so you grab the magnitude of who Abraham is. John 8, 56 through 59, Jesus speaking says this of Abraham, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Remember, he's talking to the religious leaders who are constantly trying to trip him up and, uh, and you know, they're jealous. He says, your father Abraham, that's a real kind of wake up to them because they were all about Abraham and Moses. He rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Verse 58 is incredible. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Wow. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So there's what we need to know about Abraham and uh, the fact that, you know, Jesus is claiming divinity there when he says, I am, they knew exactly what that meant, amen? And that's why they pick up stones to, to try and kill him because in their minds, that's blasphemy unless you are God. Chapter eight starts in verse one by clarifying the main point here. I like, I like the way this starts. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. It's, it's good when you're doing... Uh, it's good when you are trying to make a point that you make a point. Anybody? It's been said before, if you can't get to the point, don't go on the journey. Do you ever hear people who talk a lot, but they don't say much? Come on, in theology, that's not good. Have you ever read books that it's just loaded with, I mean, it seems like fluff after fluff, and you're looking for the point, you're digging for the point. Here's the writer, chapter 8, saying here's the main point, and that's a good thing. Uh, false teachers never want to make points. And if you see false teachers in Scripture, false teachers in the earth now, what do they do? They construct tall tales, and they sensationalize things, and they take obscure Bible passages or eschatology, and they, they weave a, you know, some fantastic story that's captivating. 
and, and you say, you know, the simple, look at that and go, wow, that's deep. But really, it's not deep at all. It's just muddy. Some things aren't deep. They're just muddy. You can't see the bottom, and that's on purpose. Okay, so realize scripture and doctrine that we rest on has to be clear. We have to know the point, amen? And God's word makes points that are pivotal for us to know. So verse 1 talks about our high priest, and that's Jesus, and he's far superior to every and any other high priest because he's actually seated at the right hand of God in the heavens. Now, that's important. It's more than just, you know, oh, getting a picture of what Jesus is doing. He says the main point, what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat, say seat, at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched not by man. Okay, so let's just take a look at what was said there. Jesus is our high priest. He's far superior. First of all, every high, every high priest and every priest that functioned on the earth lived on the earth. Jesus is seated in the heavens. Now, being seated is actually a very important thing. There again, it's not just to show what Jesus' posture is, but when you, talk, when you talk about being seated in a spiritual sense, it's symbolic of power, authority, and completion. The reason Jesus sat down, Gucci, is because when he said it is finished, he wasn't kidding. Mic drop, Jesus is done, I'm sitting down. And he's seated because Calvary is a finished work. Now, Jesus wasn't seated, and he was rushing around doing things and trying to get this, and, oh, the devil broke out here, and I got to do this. No, he's seated. Yes, we know in heaven he's in his father's house uh, constructing mansions for his children. Amen. He, he's, uh, he's praying and interceding for us. But the seated position is very telling. It talks of his power, his authority, the fact he has a name above every name. He's sitting down because he's completed his task. Now, it's a finished work, the cross is, and the redemption that was done by the blood of the Lamb is a finished work. So our priest is seated, and he's making intercession for us. And what else is he doing? He's waiting for the Father to make his enemies his footstool. Now, Psalm 110.1, Luke 20.42, Acts 2.35, Hebrews 1.13 and 10.13 all say that Jesus is seated, and God is going to what? Make his enemies his footstool. If you want to look those scriptures up and, and see, that's what the Lord is doing. You say, what is that? That's the process of the work of Calvary that is finished, catching up with humanity and it playing out in God's plan of eschatology for us to come to an end when he finally takes care of the devil for good and cast him into the pit. Amen. And it's a done deal. But in between now and then, what? We have generation after generation that has a choice. They can either serve Jesus Christ or they can serve their flesh. They can serve the devil. And, and man is making his choice here. Jesus is finished. He's done. He's seated. We have choices to make. Hopefully tonight, you've chosen to serve Christ and trust him as your Savior and Lord. Amen? If you have, then it's finished for you too. And you're seated. So that's a beautiful picture. If you were standing now, we'd have an altar call. But So there's a picture of our high priest, and that which makes him superior, that his work is done. He doesn't have to continue to offer sacrifices. He doesn't continue to go back to the cross. He doesn't have to continue to shed his blood. So important. Verse 2, Jesus' high priestly ministry takes place in the heavens. You know, and that's one thing to look at. First, he is our minister, and that's important for us to understand. Jesus inter 
acts with the Father, and he advocates to, to the Father on our behalf. Remember, that's what a minister, that's what a priest, a high priest does. He advocates for the people. And understand something. You say, well, what do I need an advocate for? I can just go to God. We could not just go to God. We needed someone to deal with our sin issue, amen? Our sin separated us from a holy God who interceded, Jesus Christ, as a meteor, and he interceded and advocated for us. And it's important for us to understand all of this, amen? Because you and I, without Christ, have no connection to the Father, especially as Gentiles. But everything we do has to be in Christ. And uh, he is our advocate. He ministers uh, in the sanctuary of the true tabernacle that God made not with the, uh, you know, the hands of man. So let's take a look at that. There's some interesting things being said here that we could just blast right over, but we need to just take a minute and see what God is saying here. He ministers in the sanctuary in the true tabernacle. Where is that? It's in heaven which the Lord pitched, not with man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that the high priest also have something to offer. So the tabernacle and the sanctuary, the real ones, the true ones, are in heaven. What was made on earth was a replica. Do you remember when Moses had to make the tabernacle and how God gave him such you know, step-by-step details. Everything God made is superior to everything man-made. Come on. Oh, I like the buildings, and I like the bridges, and I like the Hoover Dam. Yeah, it's all nice, but what God made is amazing, amen? I've been in the woods lately just looking at the fall leaves and stuff. My wife and I took a walk on our anniversary just looking. I mean, what God made. People just walk by, I mean, just stop and look at a maple tree exploding with color. Come on, if you can't feel that, you're dead. We need to get the Holy Ghost jumper cables out and pop. What God made is always better than what man makes, amen? So the God-made tabernacle is in heaven, and it's far superior, just as Jesus' priesthood is far superior. He's seated. He operates in the sanctuary. He operates in the tabernacle. Everything that man makes is subject to flaw and failure or becoming obsolete, Uh, You know, verse 3 points out the fact that the high priests all had to offer gifts and sacrifices. And Jesus follows that pattern, and he offers gifts and sacrifices uh, in in the heavenly realm. Uh, Things that, you know, his intercession for us and his sacrifice was himself. He shed his blood. We understand all this. The writer of Hebrews is trying to pattern this in for the Jewish mind so they understand that Christ fits the bill in all of these areas. And when you exchange a mortal high priest for this eternal high priest after the order of Melchizedek, you're not losing anything. You're gaining everything. Amen? Just like you and I, when we, when we came out of our sin and our shabbiness and we, we exchanged our liberty and we became, you know, Christians and we say, Jesus, you are Savior and Lord, we didn't lose anything. Oh, I wish there were some Christians here tonight. <laughs> oh, you still want to go back in the world? You still want to go to the party? You still want to go to the club? No, all of that is empty and shallow and there's nothing to it, Amen. It's like Peter said to Jesus when he said, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And all the people said, we're out of here. And he turns to the disciples and says, are you going to leave too? And Peter says, Lord, where can we go? Who else has the words of eternal life? Where are we going to go? Amen. (laughs) The rocks and the babies will cry out. So, you know, this point that uh, Jesus is far superior is being driven home 
verse 4 and 5 shine some light on the fact that it would be unnecessary for Jesus to function as an earthly high priest. Why? Because we already had earthly high priests, and they did what God told them to do. They were from the tribe of Levi. They worked in accordance to the Mosaic law. But what Jesus has done is once and for all, there's no need to offer continual sacrifices. Verse 5 is particularly interesting in that it shows the purpose of everything done in the Old Testament. The Old Testament was types and shadows, and here's, here's, a, here's an, ex, an explanation of that. Who serves as a copy of the shadow of the heavenly things. So the tabernacle we had here on earth was what? It was a copy uh, and a shadow of heavenly things. What was done in heaven was constructed on earth. So the Old Testament is said to be types and shadows, showing principles, showing the things of God, the patterns of God, uh, a copy of what is done in heaven on earth here. So the shadow of heavenly things, just as Moses was warned, notice that, he was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he also, the mediator of the better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. So let's take a look at some of that there. Uh, verse 5, the interesting part here is that we see that the Old Testament is types and shadows, and, and it's there for our benefit to see the patterns of God. God was very clear uh, with Moses when he constructed the tabernacle. He was told exactly what to do in great detail. Moses was given no liberty to stray at all from the divine pattern. He couldn't just say, well, let's throw a couch over here or let's go. God gave him the, the, the furniture and the dimensions and the, you know, the type of material to use for the curtains and the rings. If you study how you know, the, they, they fashioned the tabernacle, man, there was no wiggle room, no liberty. They had to follow the pattern. Why? Because they were making a replica of something that already existed in heaven and they were making it on earth and it had to accurately reflect the original so uh, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain verse six jesus wasn't merely perfecting earthly things he was bringing heaven to earth and so Realize, you know, Jesus is not just the, the best high priest that man ever had. No, he's of a different order, Melchizedek. Now, understand this. It says here he's the mediator of a better covenant with better promises. How many likes that? How many like that? When you go to buy a car, you know, the, the, the sticker says this, but you sit down at the desk and you haggle. Why? Because you want a better deal. Come on, with a better warranty at a lower price. You want to beat that guy, right? So he goes home hungry, right? You want to... I mean, when people buy cars, they're just trying to kill each other. He's got to eat, you got to eat, get a fair price, right? I'm not one of those haggler guys, just, that's my wife, she could. So, understand, you know, this is talking about a better covenant with better promises. Jesus is the mediator, why? He advocates on our behalf. He brokered the covenant for us, amen? It's all about Jesus. Now, here's the law covenant in a nutshell. The law covenant was this, keep the law perfectly or pay the penalty yourself. Who wants a better deal? I do. You know why? Maybe you can, but I can't keep the law. And if we break one part of it, we're guilty of the whole thing. Well, I never killed anybody or committed adultery, but have you lied and stole and guilty of the whole law? It's quiet. Nobody wants to answer. 
let me just start pointing. You did this. And, no, I'm just kidding. So, you know, the law covenant, keep it perfectly. If you break one part of it, you're guilty of the whole thing. And if you're guilty, you have to pay the penalty yourself. And the penalty for sin was death. So here's a better covenant, the new covenant. Jesus satisfies the law on our behalf. He pays the price for our sin. And he says, believe in me, and I'll count it as righteousness for you. That's a better covenant. Those are better promises. That's a better deal. Amen. God took out all the areas where we could mess it up and did all the heavy lifting himself. You know why? Because if there was any point where we could mess it up, we would mess it up. Because that's the, that's the nature of our fallen nature. Sin, like leaven, just permeates through us. So God said, you know, here's the better covenant. I'm going to have Christ mediate it. He's going to be your advocate. Forget about the law. The law is just to bring the knowledge of sin, and it still has a function. But I've satisfied the law on your behalf. I paid the price for your sin. If you believe on me, and I'll count it as righteousness for you, and positionally, I'll see you as holy. Well, this is, there's a lot of deep theology in here, amen, and we're just scratching the surface but to everything that's written in the epistles that Paul writes in Philippians and Galatians, all of these things, they're kind of, you know, in a nutshell right here. Verse 7 again points out the weakness of the first covenant was man's inability to keep it and satisfy the requirements of the law. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion or no need sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, now, God had a problem with the people as they were not keeping the covenant as they agreed to it. He said, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on that day when I took them out of the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant and I did not care for them, says the Lord. Let's just take a look at all that that I just read there, because powerful stuff there. Again, the covenant was weak because uh, of our inability to keep the law. The weakness of the covenant creates a need for a second covenant. Now, God knew what he was doing here, and he was working sequentially, and he was uh, dealing with his people, but he also had the Gentiles in mind, and he knew this new covenant was going to bring in the Gentiles, and this was all part of God's plan. You might say, it's a little messy. Well, that's not our business, amen. I, I, I can't tell you why he did it this way, but I'm just glad he included us. Say amen. So uh, the covenant was weak. It gave an occasion for a better covenant, and that's a good thing for us. The weakness was not on God's part, if you notice in uh, verse 8. Come on, you know, you might look at it and go, come on, God, you made a covenant we couldn't keep. Well, the weakness was not on God, it was us. God's law is perfect, and it's beautiful, and it's righteous, and it's holy. But we can't keep it. So the fault was not with God. The fault was with us and the weakness of the flesh and our fallen nature. Understand that wherever there's weakness and uh, it's man's inability to keep his end of the bargain, uh, it was not God's weakness. He didn't make a bad covenant. It's just that it, it was impossible for human beings to keep it. Uh, he said, but finding fault with them, what was the fault that he found? They didn't keep up their end of the bargain, meaning God's people couldn't uphold the law. And we, we understood that that was the part of the process of bringing us to the knowledge of sin. The legal requirements of the law show us that we are intrinsically fallen and we need a savior, amen? 
and we talked about this, if you try and keep the Ten Commandments, you're just going to realize how, how much of a sinner you are and how much of a Savior you have in Jesus Christ, amen? But it doesn't mean, you know, well, you know, well we lie and steal and cheat and all those things. No, we, we do our best to, to fulfill the law, and in Christ we have the power of the Holy Spirit, amen? We shouldn't be going around breaking all of those things, amen? God forbid. But the point is that we're guilty of it in some respect, and we need grace, and grace is a better covenant. So God found fault with them, and not in a fault-finding way, but just in the fact that this covenant wasn't working. They're unable to keep it. Uh, the latter half of verse 8 through 12 speak of the parameters of the new covenant that God himself was about to enact with his people. The new covenant is directed squarely towards the Jews here. And I want you to, I want you to listen to this <clears throat> when you start in verse 8 here. He says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel. Who's in the house of Israel? Israelites, Jews, amen. And with the house of Judah. Whose house is that? Jews. Okay, you got the two houses there, uh, Israel and Judah. You know how the, that whole situation worked there with the tribes. Uh, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. So there's a, there's a beautiful picture there of God as a father leading them out of Egypt, which is a type of the world. Uh, he wanted them to come out of that worldly system and be his people and live uh, face to face, hand to hand with him. But listen, he says, for they did not continue in my covenant uh, and they did not care and I did not care for them, says the Lord. So that's an interesting thing to say. You know, God did not care for them. Well, he provided for them. He gave them manna. He provided them water. Uh, he might not have cared for the way they responded to him in complaining and constantly, you know, wanting to go back to Egypt. But understand, you know, God, when he sees people reject his grace, he doesn't care for that. And it's hurtful to him. Think about how gracious God has been to us, and yet sometimes we're like, hey, God, what have you done for me lately? Come on, that's an attitude we get. And, you know, God doesn't care for that. And God doesn't have to put up with that. You know, many times he chastises us or prunes us or disciplines us. Why? So, you know, we can be thankful and we can be grateful and we can, you know, function properly uh, as his children. Uh, many covenants are if-then covenants. If you do this, then God will do this. If you don't do it, then God is under no obligation to keep that covenant. Some covenants are eternal covenants. They just rest on God's word. God says, I, I'm going to just do this. And you look at the uh, Abrahamic covenant, I will bless those that bless you and curse those who curse you. That's not dependent on anything of what Israel does. That's why you see that covenant still in effect today, that God protects and defends the land of Israel and the children of God. Come on. And you, you see that, and he's always been faithful to them, even though they rejected the Messiah and they're, they're kind of treading water here until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. But God still keeps his covenant. Now, if-then covenants are different. If we don't keep up our end, God's under no obligation to keep up his. And so that's kind of what happened here. They didn't keep up their side of it, so God said, I, I didn't care for them, even though he, he was very gracious to them. But, you know, the truth is that that entire generation died in the wilderness, except for Joshua and Caleb. That's it. <laughs> and so, you know, those who had the right heart and, and faith and trusted God, it was only two out of that whole group that came out of Egypt. Wow. Narrow is the gate uh, and straight, you know, 
straight and narrow, not wide. Two out of, you know, what was there, maybe almost two million. Wow. So, you know, covenants are amazing things, but there is a part when it's an if-then covenant that we have to keep and uphold and we need to examine the covenants and make sure that we're in right standing with God. What an incredible covenant we have with the new covenant of, of the blood of the lamb here. It's just God has done all the heavy lifting. All we have to do is come to him, confess that we're sinners, believe that Jesus rose from the dead and we'll be saved. It's so simple and it's so gracious. The Israelites didn't keep their end of the bargain. They fell dead in the desert. Joshua and Caleb led the people into the promised land. Notice, not even Moses led the people into the promised land. Remember, Moses struck the rock, and he, he, really, he really got God upset. And God said, you're not going to take these people in. And Moses kind of went back and forth, and God said, that's it. We're not even talking about it again. You're not taking them in. Wow. Sometimes we need to remember that God is a holy God and that we shouldn't mess with him. Amen. Verse 10, the new covenant is an eternal covenant. Uh, like the old, it's based, the old was based on our performance and how we adhered to the law. But, you know, this is an eternal covenant. And the old covenant was external in that it was based on performance. But the new covenant is internal. It's a matter of the heart. Amen. Not to say that, you know, we shouldn't do good works and we shouldn't, you know, honor God. and We shouldn't keep the commandments. We should do those things, but that's not what saves us. Amen. It's not external, it's internal. It's an eternal, it's an eternal, internal covenant. There, I can only say that once. Uh, verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. And so it, it is squarely pointed towards Israel and Judea. Uh, remember, we're grafted into this thing here. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. The covenant will be universally embraced by Israel at some point when Christ returns Scripture indicates in several places that Israel will see him as the Messiah on the second time back, and they are all going to accept him. And, um, you know, the, the Scripture says some interesting things about what's going to happen on that day. It's going to be a glorious day. But let's just take a look at 11 and 12. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. Look at that, universal salvation. The scripture says something to the effect that all Israel will be saved in a day, that you won't have to evangelize. You won't have to, you know, knock on a door and say, you know, do, do, do you know Jesus? No, everybody's going to know Jesus. They're all going to universally accept him. That, that's an awesome thing. It's, you know, something that, you know, if you love people and if you love the nation of Israel, what a glorious day that's going to be when all of Israel sees that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. Awesome. I don't know about you, but I, I'm not willing that any should perish. I want everybody to get saved. Amen. I, I hope Jesus just walks down into hell after a million years and goes, who wants to hear the gospel now? <laughs> I have no scriptural evidence that it'll happen, but, you know, I, I would like to see everybody get saved. I'd like to see the devil deceive no one. I'd like no one to lose their soul. And God is not willing that any should perish. So, the new covenant will be universally embraced by Israel. Everyone's going to know the Lord, the entire nation. Uh, Romans 11, 25 through 27, listen to this. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. 
that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all of Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Wow. I don't know about you, but that's awesome. And he says, I don't want you to be uninformed. Who's he talking to? Gentiles. And, and, and he's saying what? That you don't become wise in your own estimation. That you don't discount the Jews and think you're superior. Why? Because a partial hardening happened to Israel. Why? So the fullness of the Gentiles could be realized. The only reason God has allowed the partial hardening when they rejected the Messiah, and it's continued here, is so that the Gentiles can be saved. When the church age is over and the, and the church is caught up to be with Christ, God will focus his attention once again on Israel, and then when he returns, all Israel. Israel will be saved in a day. Awesome stuff. Is it too hot? Did you wilt out there? All right, we're going to bring it in for a landing here. Verse 13, the new covenant eclipses and then replaces the old covenant. And I want you to see that. So, you know, what's happening here is that there's something happening transitionally. The law still has a function. So listen to how this is worded. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whenever it is becoming obsolete and growing old, it is ready to disappear. So the new covenant is going to be better, built on better promises. It's going to eclipse the old covenant so it's obsolete and it'll replace it. But in the stopgap here, there's still an effect that the law has, and it has it on lost humanity. It's that it brings us to the knowledge of sin. Scripture also teaches that, that if people try to keep the commandments of God, it'll bring them to the knowledge of sin so that they have a desire for a Savior, and ta-da, Jesus is right there with his arms wide open, ready to save. But this eclipsing and replacing is a process. Uh, The old covenant still has a function, but the new covenant is what uh, we base our salvation on because it's built on the blood of Jesus. And so that ends the chapter And a lot of good things in there. There again, solidifying the fact that Jesus, our high priest, is more than sufficient. As for us Gentiles, you know what? We might not care too much about this whole high priest concept. We were never under the law covenant. We were just crazy Gentiles running around in our sin. And we're happy to be saved right now. Amen. But let's, amen. But let's remember our Jewish brothers and sisters who are part of the family of God and who are partially hardened at this point for our benefit. Let's pray for Israel. Let's pray for Jerusalem. Let's give respect and honor to the Jewish people. Amen. There's some Christian, uh, I don't even know if I want to call them Christians, but they, they preach a replacement theology that does away with the Jews and says, well, we're the new, the new Israelites. It's not biblical. When Jesus comes back, he's going to focus squarely on Israel, and all Israel will be saved in a day. Let's bow our heads. Father, I just thank you for Hebrews. I thank you for the word. I thank you for all of these treasures in here, Lord. I pray that we, as we've ingested them tonight, Lord, that you'd call them to our remembrance, that we'd be excited about this 
amazing covenant we have and this amazing high priest we have in Jesus Christ that he's an advocate for us and he, he brokered a covenant with the Father to save us from our sins. And it's not by the law, it's not by the works of the law, but it's by faith. It's the grace of God and what a beautiful thing it is. Help us, Lord, to be thankful every day for the miracle of salvation you've given us in Jesus Christ and to walk worthy of our calling God to walk worthy of our calling, to be useful in your hands, to have a heart for the lost and a heart for Israel. And above all things, a heart for you, God. You've done amazing things for us and you're worthy of all our praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Give him praise tonight.